We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to episode number 10 of Fantasy Bites. Of course, I'm your host, Joe Bartle. Continuing on our Keeper Dynasty series, Mario Puig joins the show to break down some of the biggest questions of the rookie pass-catching group following the NFL draft. Without further ado, enjoy. Number three. All right, Mario. So what's the third biggest takeaway of the pass catchers following the NFL draft? Well, the tight end position didn't have a whole lot to offer us, especially in terms of 2020 in this rookie class. But if there is an exception to that, I think we might see it in New England where it's just come up a little bit more lately because of Cam Newton agreeing to terms with the Patriots. We, we have hope again for their passing game since it's, it's Cam instead of Stidham, Jared Stidham that we're expecting to start. And if Cam can bring that passing game to life, then the tight end position has traditionally mattered quite a bit in, in the new England offense. And even Cam in Carolina, of course, worked really well with Greg Olson. So it's possible that the Patriots go into this year with the top two players at tight end being rookies, the third round pick Devin Aziazi out of UCLA. And then the second, the, uh, I don't know, it was like eight picks after him a little bit later in the same round, Dalton Keene from Virginia tech. And they're a little bit different as tight ends. I've seen some people hypothesizing that actually Dalton Keene is kind of a fullback. I don't agree with that. I think it's pretty clearly that Dalton Keene is uh, a real tight end. He's just kind of, he, he came from a weird offense at Virginia tech where they gave him a lot of sort of H back looks like maybe you could imagine the NFL using him in the way that Chris Cooley was used by Washington back in the day. He, or though he could develop a broader skill set and be used more like a guy like Austin Hooper, who he has pretty much the exact same frame and athleticism as it's just that for the play calling at Virginia tech, they used him more like an underneath guy, getting him on these tight end screens, letting him generate yardage after the catch, which he was very good at because he's very quick and, 
And the thing that's interesting about Dalton Keene is he just turned 21 this spring. So he was super productive at Virginia Tech on a, on a modest target count. And admittedly, a lot of those targets were kind of manufactured screen type plays. So it's not like he was just running, uh, you know, running a, a clean release route against a press coverage split out wide. He didn't really do stuff like that, but he was really tough to stop underneath and in the screen game. And with the way that the Patriots use so many pick plays, use a lot of misdirection motion or whatever the the wide zone running it's going to be useful for that offense i think to have an athlete and a skilled runner with in the open field like keen aziazi is a little bit denser built like whereas keen's a 6'4 250 guy uh uh, Devin Aziazi is more like 6'3", 255, maybe pushing 260. So he's, he's got more of like a thumper build to him. And he was very productive at UCLA last year. But the problem is he was a 22-year-old player last year, and he did nothing in the years before that. And I know that doesn't mean much to, to people 22 years old. That sounds plenty young, right? But in college football, that actually makes you one of the oldest players on the field among fourth-year players. So it's concerning to me that Devin Aziazi didn't produce until the last season at UCLA when he had an age advantage over his competition competition. Uh, and then the contrast to that is of course, Keen, who was very young. He was at an age disadvantage and he was still productive earlier in his career than Devin Aziazi. So I know the Patriots took Aziazi ahead of Keen, but I think we'll find that Keen is the better player. And the only question as far as 2020 goes is, is like, what's, what's a fair expectation for rookies and especially a young one like Keen, maybe Aziazi stays ahead of him this year just because he's older, but I really feel confident in the long term, uh, as in like 2021, I fully believe Keen will be the top tight end on that depth chart. And I don't mean to rule it out for 2020 either. I, I think he's just good. And I think people are going to be surprised at how good he is. I think it's also worth mentioning. And you actually just wrote about this the other day or, or the day before that cam Newton come to the Patriots offense. Doesn't necessarily mean we're seeing Carolina cam Newton in new England, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're seeing Tom Brady with a, a, a like a, a, I'm sorry, like a Tom Brady, like a uh, cam Newton sort of spot either. Like they're, there's probably going to be unique blend between the Cam Newton we saw at the Panthers and the Patriots offense overall. We're not going to see that big of a rushing difference for Cam Newton, but he's still yeah. short passes too. So people might say, Hey, well, this offense is going to look completely different than Tom Brady, where you utilize all those tight ends. I don't know if that's not, if that's necessarily true though. Right. And people tend to think that cam shows up and then the team stops throwing the ball. I don't think that's going to happen here. I know that he ran quite a lot in Carolina, but that was a couple things. One, he was, he was really uniquely good at that, of course. Uh, and when you're younger, it's easier to run than when you're 31 and, and after the foot break and the shoulder surgical repair that he dealt with a couple of years ago. So I just don't think there's any reason to think that the, that the Patriots will call run plays like the Panthers did. And so I think we'll see him run something more like half or a third of what he used to, which is to say, I expect him to look less like Josh Allen in the Buffalo offense and more like Aaron Rodgers in the Packers offense or Mahomes in the chiefs offense. Uh, in the sense that, you know, those two still run every so often. And every time they do run, it's, you know, they're going to be pretty good at it, but they still don't do it that much. They're still past first quarterbacks. And I think going to new England, uh, the, the new England offense, by the way, has a much higher tempo than the Carolina one, which basically just means they run more plays because they, they get the ball snapped faster than other teams. So that's going to allow cam to throw more passes than people are used to with him. Anyway, I know people are thinking, Oh, he's going to throw 490 passes. Cause that's what he did in Carolina. I think he's going to throw more like, 540 over a 16 game sample, which would basically be like a 50 to 60, uh, 50 to 60 pass attempt decrease from Brady. And that does hurt the passing game a little bit, but 
it still will be more than I think most people are because I, th I think basically Cam's going to have to throw more, um, if only because they, the fact that that's compounded by the fact that, that they run more plays. Like if, if he's going to be a running quarterback, the risk of him getting injured is that much higher in an up-tempo offense like the Patriots. So I think he's going to throw more, and, and crucially, I think he's going to be good at that. I think the idea that Cam ever ran because he needed to was always wrong, and that in, with the Patriots, with a much better offensive line, with a better scheme, I think he's going to do just fine as a passer. I, I think he'll be pretty seamless as a passer in New England. It's probably the biggest thing that I can think of between you and Mario and myself is our difference of opinion on Cam Newton. Because I've been saying for years now that I have not thought he was an effective passer. We're going to really find out this season because there isn't going to be the rushing element that Cam Newton we we know to be from past seasons, at least not to that extent. I agree with you. I think he'll still factor it in, but this is not a Josh Allen situation or somebody that's using his legs more often than not. So we'll find out if the Cam Newton passer that you and John seem to think he is, is still around. And it's probably not a fair comparison because he's had, I think it was two short, Two so uh, two shoulder surgeries, correct? Like I'm not if I was reading the reports uh, earlier on, or it's just one. He on the same might one. have had two. I can't. He had at least one. I just I can't remember right. if he had a surgery for the rotator cuff tear and then a second one in 2018. But uh, the shoulder was basically a problem for about two years. Going into last year, we weren't even supposed to worry about the foot. It was the shoulder that we were worried about. And then it seemed, oh, the shoulder's kind of okay, but he's got this problem with his foot. But it's no big deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, week one, week two happens is, Oh, actually that's that, that clearly is a big deal. And then they say like, Oh, it's a Liz Frank injury, by the way. Okay. That's, that's great. Didn't need that. But you know, the, the good, if it goes well, it's, it's, it has something to do with how he's been healing since week two for this. So it's, it's a faster turnaround than, you know, uh, Marquise Brown did in his particular case between Oklahoma and the Ravens, but it's also a much more delicate situation, both because cam is older and because he's a much bigger player and he, he puts a lot more torque on his feet than someone like Marquise Brown does. So it could still go very wrong, but you know, he's, he's had plenty of time both between the shoulder and the foot. So maybe if, if he's, if he's kind of, minimizing the harm going forward. Maybe he can get through his season without the wheels falling off too bad. And if so, I don't know. I have, I have to keep the upside scenario in mind. And to me, the upside scenario for him isn't really as much, uh, you know, it's certainly, it's not the vintage cam, you know, running for 10 touchdowns, throwing for 30 touchdowns. It would be more like he turns into like I said, that sort of uh, Aaron Rodgers late career thing. Like maybe he surprises people by throwing for 4,000 yards to offset the disappointment of him only running, only running for, you know, 300 yards and five touchdowns as opposed to uh, 700 yards and five to 10 touchdowns like he used to. Circling back, this is the benefit to Dalton Keene as opposed to, as opposed to Devin. Is it Asiasi or I, I, I'm not totally sure. I like to so I just say fast enough where nobody knows. <laughs> I like to rotate on names that I'm not okay. sure so that I got a couple examples of me getting it right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I kind of rotate on a name like that. I, I guess I, to be serious, I think it's like AZ Ozzy, but I don't know. AZ Ozzy. Okay. All right. Anyway, Dalton Keene, the biggest benefit, at least for the tight end group, that was a little bit mild entering this year. Number two. What is your second biggest takeaway from the pass catchers group for people in rookie and dynasty drafts? Well, I still like Brandon Ayuk fine in, you know, the abstract. And I think in dynasty keeper leagues, 
it's nice that you got this, you know, first round pick receiver. Who's pretty fast, pretty explosive tied to the Kyle Shanahan offense. That's, that's real currency in the long term. but in the short term, at least for, you know, redraft and best ball, I think Brandon Ayuk is getting too expensive. And I think people are making too much out of this Debo Samuel foot injury. Don't get me wrong. The foot injury could go really poorly for Debo. It was the same injury that Trent Taylor had last year and the 49ers medical staff or Taylor. I don't know who's fault it is like they screwed it up like they he kept getting into these setbacks and if they're cautious with Debo and just let that foot heal it's supposed to only take eight to ten weeks i.e he should be well in advance of the season ready to go so as long as they don't put him on the uh, the Trent Taylor plan and I assume like beat it with a hammer every few days he should be fine and this thing that people are chasing with Ayuk never even happens anyway but even if Debo misses time or is otherwise limited to start the year I don't really think it makes sense to chase Ayuk and I've seen people take him as high as I want to say like the 10th round in some drafts which that would be reasonable if he were the de facto number one receiver in the 49ers and Debo Samuel were not on the field. But I think even if Debo Samuel is off the field, it's not going to be Ayuk. It would probably instead be a bit of a rotation that picks up the slack. It could just, it could change to something where Trent Taylor as the lead slot receiver takes over the, 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 the function, the lead function as um, among receivers in the receiving game. But there's also Jalen Hurd, who's, weird, but he definitely can run after the catch. Like he's six, five and really lanky and not particularly fast, but he just has this, uh, kind of inexplicable ability to run after the catch. And so if Debo's reps are missing, I think Hurd projects for those better than Ayuk does. Ayuk basically plays a different position. He's, he's still a Shanahan receiver, of course, and he can do interesting things after the catch, but he's more of a runaway in the open field after the catch kind of guy. Whereas Debo's more, you, you run over people until there's open field ahead of you kind of, kind of player. And I think Jalen Hurd is closer to that than Ayuk. So if you're going to, if you're going to pay a little more, than usual or a little more than we used to on Ayuk, I would still rather do it in the keeper dynasty context where uh, you're still retaining that equity of of just what should be a generally bright future. I think if you're paying up in the short term, you're just, you're just making unreasonable expectations. Like you're just expecting too much too soon. Um, So I'm a little concerned about Ayuk for the 2020 purposes and, and the redraft purposes. And then in the longer term, I, so whereas I think Ayuk's a decent enough player and a decent enough system with the 49ers, I'm a little bit more concerned about the case of Van Jefferson, the second round pick out of, uh, he used to be at Mississippi of Florida. He was at Florida most recently and he started out his career at Mississippi where he was, by the way, a redshirt freshman the year that AJ Brown and DK Metcalf both got on the field. And I've seen people talk about how, look, Van Jefferson posted the most yardage of those three in their freshman years at Mississippi. So that means Van Jefferson <laughs> right. as DK Metcalf and AJ Brown. And it's a couple things that they're wrong about. One is that Van Jefferson was already a bit old for his class and he was a red shirt. So he was a second year player. They were first year players. Um, the second thing is his efficiency and his, his per target numbers were actually way behind AJ Brown and, and DK Metcalf. Like I think Van Jefferson was actually a little bit below the team baseline that year. Uh, whereas AJ Brown, was way ahead of it. And DK Metcalf was also pretty far ahead of it. So if people try to sell you on Van Jefferson pointing at what he did at Mississippi, you should ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about or they're trying to trick you. And beyond that, what we have a player who transferred to Florida 
And he gets all this praise for his route running and his release technique. All, all aspects of technique in playing receiver, Van Jefferson is by all accounts very good. But the problem is he's going to be a 24-year-old rookie. And he was a 23-year-old last year at Florida where – I know people have, have tried to explain this away as, well, the Florida offense rotated its receivers a lot. And so it's not Van Jefferson's fault that he barely has more yardage than Freddie Swain, the sixth round pick uh, of the Seahawks, who is a couple years younger, at least than Van Jefferson. And then there's these, there's a couple other, uh, like the tight end Kyle Pitts or whatever had about the same numbers. There's all these guys who, especially in the Swain case, like that concerns me. If, if Van Jefferson is as good as, as his proponents want to say he is, he should be able to easily outproduce a guy like Freddie Swain, especially with an age advantage. But when you're 23 and you're a, a a fifth year player at the college level, you have so much advantage over, over these younger guys that you're going against in terms of just knowing the right tricks and knowing how to do things the right way. And it, it's a huge advantage that has to be accounted for in the production. And if you try to account for it in the production, it pretty clearly just takes Jefferson from this sort of second round capital that the NFL placed on him and more like a day three kind of guy. Like he, he seems like he should have been to me more like a fifth round pick than a second round pick. And unlike Ayuk, who has at least the Shanahan system in his eventual favor, uh, not to mention a, a lot of verified speed and explosiveness. Jefferson never ran before the draft because of that broken foot that he had uh, going back to the senior bowl. And when you watch his tape, he doesn't seem especially fast. He doesn't make big plays. He's all, he's all about making like uh, real crisp slants for a solid 11 yard gain and stuff like that. And if you're, if you've seen Jared Goff play in the past year, that to me doesn't sound like enough. Like I need, I need a receiver who's going to really raise the level of the offense to deal with Goff and his limitations. And I just think Jefferson's going to get to the NFL. They're going to find out, wow, all that great release, all that great uh, route running technique that he showed on tape. That was just because he's much older than all the other players that were watching at, at in this tape. And because he was raised by a wider, a former NFL wide receiver and current wide receiver coach, Sean Jefferson. So he had every advantage in his, like, as far as, um, you know, b being raised to be a wide receiver, uh, having the time to, to learn and apply lessons from, from the, the top sources and, and have all these structural advantages that his peers did not. So he needs to not just be generally good in that case. He needs to be way better than them because those other players don't have the same advantages of him as him. He didn't do it. So I've seen people talk about how, Van Jefferson might break out in a year or two because Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup might walk, Robert Woods might walk, something like that. Maybe the Rams do specifically think he's going to be a replacement for one of those two. I just think they're going to find out that they were wrong, that he's just not that good, and that Jared Goff isn't good enough to make him look better than he is. Whereas I think with the 49ers, Ayuk can at least after 2020 uh, start to start to reach those expectations because Shanahan won't, you know, won't, won't Shanahan won't let it go to waste there. Whereas I think with the Rams, there is a pretty real risk that Van Jefferson just sort of settles in as a, I don't know, like a, a better version of Keelan Cole or something like that. It's funny. I've ran down the list of rookie wide receivers a number of times. And of course you can also see it on the RotoWire website as well uh, in the rookies section. And it kind of breaks down all the positions, whether it be running back, quarterback, tight end receiver all in one spot. And I think you do the rankings for that too. So it's been an excellent tool for me as I'm going through and asking, answering questions for different people. 
I almost forget about Van Jefferson among all the rookie receivers. This is an incredibly deep class, an incredibly talented class that I think goes at least eight or nine deep. That makes sense in a redraft perspective, not even just a keeper or dynasty format in a redraft perspective, taking at least in deeper leagues. I don't think Van Jefferson fits that mold. And maybe it's because the Rams are uh, trying to plan ahead on if Cooper Cup or Robert Woods leaves. But I, I just don't see the talent there. I'm, I agree with you. His senior or his very last season, 657 yards and just six touchdowns. He played all 12 games. There was never, that was his like career high too in college. I don't yeah. know where we saw the production to even back up or see you know, for those quick cuts, you know? If I can interrupt, one thing that you'll see from the Van Jefferson fans, if you ask them why they think he's so good, they'll say, hey, he played against LSU last year. LSU <laughs> has Derek, uh, I can't remember, Derek Stingley, who is an insane corner, like the best cornerback prospect ever. He's Megatronic corner. But he was 18 years old last year. Van Jefferson was 23. They talk about this game against LSU and it wasn't even that great of a game. It's like Van Jefferson caught like eight passes for 77 yards or something like that. Um, They say, you know, Van Jefferson is good because he beat Stingley in this game. Five years apart are those two players. That's that is a huge gulf in terms of development time physically and skill wise. If they if they mean to argue anything or if they mean to say anything meaningful, they would have at least you know, posited, you know, if Van Jefferson was 18 too, he would have still done that. And even the Van Jefferson fans know not to say that they even, <laughs> even they kind of pick up on it. Like, Ooh, I'm about to say something stupid, aren't I? So they don't quite go that far. And yet they still insist that it's meaningful when a 23 year old player beats an 18 year, and I'm, I'm using, you know, air quotes beats uh, for eight catches for 80 yards or whatever it was. It's it, when you see, or at least the way I look, I look at things, when I see people making really bad cases like that for a player that they're they're a fan of, I start to more or less conclude that there is no good case for that player, or at least like these people don't know what they're talking about, and I should just ignore them. But Van Jefferson, I think it'll turn out is just a player who's really sharp in terms of the polish of his skills because he's had a lot of practice from, from the best, uh, you know, teachers and he's had the most time to take in those lessons. I think when he gets to the NFL, it'll just turn out, Oh, all these other people are as, as technically skilled as me. Now I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I got pushed. Um, I, I would, I previously was playing against people two years younger than me and I looked awesome. And now I'm playing against my own age group and it just turns out I'm just like, you know, not that talented compared to them. I think it's interesting. And I saw the story just the other day where the jets and you mentioned already his dad, uh, Van Jefferson's dad, the coach of water. I think he is the wide receiver coach for the jets. They had the opportunity to take Van Jefferson and they ultimately traded back the, uh, the Rams ended up selecting him and they went with Denzel Mims. I feel like the jets were really that in love with them where if they knew something was up, they would have probably made that choice for him. I, I, I don't know if you need to really look into it too much. I just thought it was very, that was a very interesting story. Uh, because the dad was definitely aggressively hoping that he would land in New York. Yeah. I didn't even notice that, but that's crazy to me. I mean, I, I, I remember thinking Van Jefferson, what a reach, but, uh, I forgot that it was specifically, um, until Mims that they took him. So, uh, that's, that's kind of crazy to me. Uh, no, you said that the jets traded back, uh, but yeah, yeah, the jets, the jets were debating Jefferson or I I would assume Denzel Mims Rams ended up trading up. So they ended up taking Denzel Mims. It's a smart strategy from a franchise perspective. If you have two guys that you find fairly similar, but it just is bizarre to me to think that Denzel Mims and Van Jefferson were even similar to begin with. 
and oh, that yeah, they I didn't... was not even I was not even a big Mims fan myself, and I was I was floored by that. Like I, I cannot imagine an argument for taking Van Jefferson ahead of Denzel Mims unless you just want like a smaller, slower, older receiver. <laughs> All the positives you look for when you're drafting at the late end of the second round. Number one. Give me your your top takeaway uh, from the pass catching group in keeper and dynasty formats. Right. So maybe 2020 is too soon to to hope for much, but one player I'm higher on in the longer term than most. And I was certainly higher on him even before the draft, him landing in Baltimore of all places just, just made me worse about this, but I'm pretty much convinced Devin Duvernay the third round pick out of Texas is underrated. I understand that he has some concerns in his profile. Like he's, he's a bit older than I'd like to see for, for when he broke out. But the thing is, he dominated to such an unreal extent his senior year at Texas. And he still wasn't that old. Like he, he was, um, I can't remember what the deal is. I think he's going to turn 23 pretty soon. So he was not, he was not like a young prospect, but the reason that I'm pretty comfortable taking him in this range, uh, or sorry, taking him for the price that he tends to go to and higher than that, even is that in Baltimore, there's already, of course, Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews and Lamar Jackson to worry about on every snap for which they're on the field. And if Duvernay is on the field, when those route runners are his flaws, they may exist and they may be meaningful in other contexts, but in the context of a defense, having to account for those other three players first, I don't think that Duvernay's limitations actually are substantive anymore because he'll have an easy task ahead of him. He'll just need to beat that one receiver or sorry, that one corner and the safeties have to worry about Brown and Andrews. They like, they just, and, and Lamar Jackson, actually, it's like, they have no choice, but to pay attention to those three players first on any given play the, the safeties have to make sure Lamar Jackson doesn't hand the ball off or that if he does, uh, if it looks like the running back has it, they have to make sure Lamar does. If, even if they verify he does, it might still be a pass play. So there's all these things that are just stressing them that they have to process and keep track of. And if you don't keep track of DeVernay, He's all of a sudden just a a really fast, really dense uh, receiver with great hands who's great after the catch. And maybe he's not uh, maybe he's a little too narrow of an athlete. Um, He's too linear of an athlete, perhaps to be a, a full route tree kind of slot receiver. But if you imagine him as a player who just does a couple things really well, and I think this is how the 49ers. Shanahan tend to look at things. Um, you know, they look at Debo Samuel and they see, Oh yeah, he's a little overage as a prospect. He's not a, anything. Uh, he doesn't do these, you know, other wide receiver things very well, but he's murderously good after the catch. And we think we can create the space for him to, to run with after the catch and Shanahan, you know, basically isolated, Debo Samuel's strength and, and made it the entire application of his game. They, they just, they just reduced Debo Samuel's job to the things that he's good at. And with, Devin DuVernay on the, on the Ravens, I'm imagining he'll actually run outside for the most part. Like Willie Sneed was their slot receiver last year. Most of the time, I think Devin DuVernay will play mostly outside uh, after playing the slot last year for Texas. And it's just going to be one of those things he's going to get. I think he's going to get looks actually kind of like what Brandon Ayuk did at Arizona state where you, you see these, these plays where he gets a slant and for some reason, no one else is there. And then no one's fast enough to catch him from behind. And, and maybe one guy does have a shot at him, but Devin DuVernay breaks tackles too. It's like, you want to see, if you want to see an actually impressive receiver against LSU last year, don't watch the Van Jefferson tape, watch Devin DuVernay, watch the big plays he makes against the LSU secondary. It's like, it's not like they didn't know who he was. He's just 
really fast and really good at breaking tackles. He's really dangerous on a, on a short screen or a short slant. And then if you send him deep, he can run away. And if the safety help isn't there, he'll just score the touchdown because he doesn't drop passes. So I guess, I guess I should have said that, that I should have emphasized the bigger picture deal with Duverne to start with is he's densely built. He's 5'10", 220. He's, he's, he's got a low center of gravity for this speed that he builds up and it, and it lends itself to breaking tackles. It's, it's more or less why he's, he's so good after the catch. So he's fast and he has great hands. Those three things, even his detractors don't mean to question what, what his detractors tend to say is, Oh, he's not quick enough to run this kind of route. And so you can't do this kind of look with this kind of personnel with him to which I would have, you know, said all along. So don't use him that way. Just, 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 just do what your bet do what your best players can do best. And with Devin DuVernay, he could have done Debo Samuel stuff for Shanahan. He could have, he could have done stuff like that in a scheme like that. And I think being with the Ravens, it's going to kind of arrange these, these just unusually easy setups. And maybe it would be true to say that Devin DuVernay would be a bust if he went to like uh, some team as their number one receiver, maybe, maybe, maybe six years from now, he'll sign a big free agency contract and he'll be a huge bust for his next team because they, they expect him to do things that he can't. But with the Ravens, he's just going to have a pretty easy task because no matter how good he becomes, he'll never be more of a concern to defenses than Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews. And then the run threat from Lamar. So I just love the way that the Lamar Jackson rush threat can pull the safeties in and then do Verne speed causes attention in the other direction. And of course, Andrews and Marquise Brown too. That's why the Ravens defense or the Ravens offense is so difficult to stop. And why Lamar is such a profound stress on defense is because they have to lean one way to minimize this one fatal risk that he presents. But if they do, they open themselves up to the other one like you can't lean forward and neutralize the rush threat that Lamar poses without leaving yourself at without leaving yourself to the vulnerable to the kill shot from the pass catchers and there's just nothing they can do about it defenses will never find a way to scheme against that unless they change the rules and let the defense have 12 players on the field like you can't do anything (laughs) against it so I just see a lot guys a lot of talented players on that offense and I don't see a theory of defense that can deal with all of it at once I want to take it a step further and I, I think that's okay with me and you might not be as aggressive with this and that's all right as well. I think DuVernay is better than Willie Sneed and I think he's better than Miles Boykin and he's going to get on the field right away. We've seen defenses overreact to things every single season. I would not be surprised at all if 2020 is the, is the season of let's stop Lamar Jackson at all costs. What does that mean? That means Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews, and the guy who's the number two receiver for the team, he's going to see a lot of snaps. And I, I, I think DuVernay is going to be that guy. They're going to get a lot of opportunities. I like him a ton in dynasty and keeper leagues. I think I probably have him among my top 14 overall. And I think you have him in the, in the 14, I think you have like a 24 range. So I think I'm way higher than you on him, which is okay. I'll, I'm fine. Uh, you know, planting my flag in this Hill, but I think he could even be a pretty good asset in redraft leagues too. It could happen. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about miles Boykin and Sneed. It's tough because he's, he's one of those guys who's on the field because he knows what he's doing rather than the, you know, the things that he's capable of. Like he's probably one of those guys who just keeps a huddle 
orderly, something like that. Like one of those coach <laughs> reasons for liking a player. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to move him. I kind of think Boykin is more, more vulnerable than Snead just because Boykin was useless last year. And I think there's a pretty high risk that he just can't really play in the NFL. But Snead was the guy who they had in the slot. And, you know, I don't think Snead will hit the bench because of DuVernay. I do have to admit putting DuVernay on some of those, those reps where, you know, Snead comes in motion and, and they, they do these various things to decode the coverage or decode the gap assignments and see what the defense is doing. And Snead goes in motion to kind of just jumble up the defense a little bit before they, before they snap the ball. If they put DuVernay in on those plays, they add another thing that the deep, another read that the defense needs to worry about because you can do a jet sweep with DuVernay, but you can't with Willie Sneed. And on those plays where he's no, coming in motion. One. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so they had a lot of these snaps last year where Sneed would motion and it got logged as a backfield snap because they would snap the ball right when Sneed went behind Lamar Jackson and then they never handed it to him. But the, but the, the theory was like, well, the defense still has to account for the read. So it's better than nothing. If you put DuVernay there, that's again, it's like the Debo thing where you, he gets so many carries with the 49ers and he, he gets these other passes and it all, they all look the same. There's like these four yard drags, these six yard slants. And then he just does a lot of a lot of work after the catch. Devin DuVernay can absolutely do those same things. And if they do put him in the, in the motion from the slot where Snead was last year, they can make not only a credible rushing threat, but one that just works, you know, it's like, it doesn't even need to be a gimmick. They can just give him the ball. And if the defense doesn't adjust to it, like he's going to run and he's, if he gets past your linebackers, your corners might just bounce off of him. So yeah, I, I think um, to circle a little bit back in DuVernay's case, as much as he was a bit of a late career breakout, he dominated to such a degree last year that I think it, it doesn't matter about my age concerns. Like he caught 106 of 130 targets and generated 1,386 yards. Uh, so it was, it was something like an 81% catch rate at, you know, 10.1 yards per target. If you look at the Texas offense aside from him, the passing game was, was nowhere near as productive with any other. That's player. my like, thing. Yep. That's like if my you, focus too. If you look at the Texas passing game peripherals and you would think, oh, the lead receiver from this offense probably yards. And it's instead DuVernay with 106 catches for 1386 and nine touchdowns. And not just that, but as a true freshman, and he was a big recruit. He was a blue chip recruit when he got to Texas because he was already known as one of the best track athletes in America. He had uh, 20 of 30 targets caught in 10 games that year for 412 yards. So that's still really good actually for a true freshman. And then he got hurt the next year. And then the year after that, they, they kind of had an offensive shift. And I think they were using him mostly as a decoy because he had a really low catch rate and, and their quarterback, Sam Ellinger, isn't really a, a good passer. So I, I, I think it was kind of a, it, it, the the worst I've ever seen as far as a quarterback receiver fit was Auburn two years ago with Stidham and Darius Slayton and, and Stidham just couldn't hit him downfield. And he only completed 43% of his passes to Darius Slayton that year. And then it turned out, Oh, it's just Stidham sucks. It wasn't Slayton's fault. I, I think you'll see that that junior year where DuVernay had the bad numbers. It was just because he was running downfield and Ellinger couldn't hit him. And then last year, you know, a little, put him a little closer to the line of scrimmage and, and it seemed like Ellinger couldn't miss him. Right. You have, you have Zach Moss. Well, I, I, I guess wrote aware has Zach Moss at 14 among rookies, Brandon Ayuk at 15, uh, LaVisca Chenault at 16, T Higgins, 17, AJ Dillon, 18, Mims, 19, Darrington Evans at 20, Joshua Kelly, 21, Anthony McFarland, 22, Tua, 23, and Duver, uh, DuVernay is going to be at 24. 
I feel comfortable saying he should be more in that AJ Dillon, Denzel Mims, T Higgins range at this point already. And that's not even assuming he's going to be the starter. I just think that the Lamar Jackson effect is going to be significant for both JK Dobbins and, and DuVernay too. So I'd like, that's I'm, I'm super high in him. I think he could even be an asset, not even just in keeper dynasty, but also in redraft this season. He could be. I mean, for what it's worth, I'm a DuVernay super fan. I don't really plan on drafting him in redraft, but if, you know, if, if training camp, you know, God willing comes along and everything's working right. I, I, I think you'll hear in training camp, you know, DuVernay's looking good. And at that point, if, or if we get some otherwise Intel that, you know, the coaches plan on implementing him right away, then I'll buy in. But in the meantime, I'm almost worried that I'm, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid too much. And like, if I, if I take DuVernay in a redraft, it's, it's me uh, getting too high on my own supply. And so <laughs> I'm trying to be more objective than is in my nature. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of put some, you know, whatever it is, fail safe, some kind of, some kind of emergency break that I'm allowed that I can't reach to, to disable. And, and so that, that hopefully I, I don't get like completely, um, completely unhinged with my DuVernay enthusiasm, but in, yeah, in dynasty and in keeper, I think he's gold. Like I, I, I think, I think he's for what it's worth to anyone. DuVernay this year is, is like the closest thing to what Mecole Hardman was for me last year. As far as, as far as like the one receiver that I'm screaming about that everyone's ignoring me and telling me I'm stupid for believing whatever it is. Like everybody ignored me and John when we were screaming about Mecole Hardman last year, I'm doing the same thing about DuVernay now. Like he is going to work in Baltimore. The question is just like, how soon are they going to turn him over to turn the keys over to him? How, do, how soon do they give up on miles Boykin? I think it's the day they give up on Boykin that DuVernay just, you know, leaves him in the dust. I'm not sure if you saw our recent note. I know we're pushing up against the clock, uh, but I, I thought it's worth pointing out. The most recent note on DuVernay is actually that the Texas wide receiver specialist that all the NFL players use, I think is a, his name is David Robinson is is quite in love with him quite infatuated with him and thinks that he along with that james Proch guy who i don't know much about and you probably know way more he's than sneed. i do he's sneaky okay. yeah. uh, he, he's he's saying duvernay is gonna be like the thing in the ravens offense and that was also coming from rg3 too who of course was the backup last year uh and, and i would assume to be the backup again this year for the ravens like it, it just there, there seems to be a little bit momentum to what you're trying to say. And I'm, I'm all there. I'm right on board. I'm ready to ride that wave. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I want to see it. I just, I, I don't know. I, I get too enthusiastic about these things. I get worked up and sometimes I, I get a little unreasonable and I'm, I got to settle down on DuVernay. Cause it's like, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a high risk subject for me, but uh, otherwise more quickly, the other receiver that I love for the long term, higher than most people is Brian Edwards in South Carolina, uh, out of South Carolina, the third round pick for the Raiders. I can see him being their leading pass catcher, uh, like starting next year. I think he's going to, in the second half of this year, start stealing a little bit of work from Hunter Renfro. I think that uh, Tyrell Williams is, is locked in maxed out as an 80 target kind of receiver. And the, the main reason I'm high on Edwards is just because he was really good at South Carolina. Like he got on the field as a true freshman, played a lot, caught 44 passes as a true freshman. And he played all four of those years, catching a lot of passes, doing a lot of good work. And it, this is the, the main thing that I, I, I kind of fixate on with Brian Edwards. He matched the production of Debo Samuel when they were on the same team. And he was 
uh, almost three years younger. I want to say he's at, he's at least two years younger than Debo. Uh, so Debo is like 24 now and, and Edwards is going to turn 22 in November. He was a four year player and he's not going to turn 22 until November. So Brian Edwards is one of those guys who just has a lot of skill and it's a lot of innate skill. And if he didn't have innate skill, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have shown it so early on with the, with the age disadvantage of the players that he went against. And if, if Debo is a good NFL receiver, then how is Edwards? How does he do what he did at South Carolina, more or less matching the action of a player two and a half years older than him, who we have is a good NFL receiver? Like, how does that happen unless he's capable of pr- producing at a standout level in the NFL, too? Yeah. And the one detriment, at least to this season, because I'm right there with you on the long term capabilities of Brian Edwards is that we don't know what the Raiders offense is going to do, but John Gruden just seems like that guy who would rather rely on his veterans, especially in a scenario where we might not get a lot of practice time or in-person practice time, or it's limited to some capacity because of COVID. There's all these uncertainties that comes with it. And I think you'd rather go with those veteran guys. If that was, if that wasn't the case, if we were in this perfect world where none of this was happening, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Tyrell Williams or somebody else, one of those veteran receivers that they have that they don't really use just gets cut outright because they, they drafted so many different pass catchers. They clearly want a different look than whatever they got last year. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. If Edwards just proves to be the better player on a cheaper contract, which is something that the Raiders, I think as, as long with every other franchise is looking, is looking for. Well, they kind of stumbled into having a lot of draft picks. I think I think they actually just didn't think of what they were going to do with all those draft picks, so they had to just keep taking these players, and Edwards was one of them. Lynn Bowden was one of them. It's funny that they call Lynn Bowden a running back. He's totally a receiver. It's like they t- they called him a running back because they started to realize that they that they have too many they're receivers. They're like, oh, man. Oops, yeah. They started, they're like, huh, if we take him and call him a receiver, does that make the Tyrell Williams contract look stupid? Are people going to call us stupid if we draft another receiver in the th- after we took Henry Ruggs over Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb, you know, stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm being unfair probably to the Raiders, but I, I just think they're, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a circus. And I, I just can't really put something like that past them. But yeah, in the short term, Hunter Renfro is a roadblock. Tyrell Williams, he's limited, but he's good at the one thing that he does. And they're paying him a lot of money. So I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, obviously, Ruggs is going to get forced onto the field as a first round pick. So I don't think you can expect much for Edwards this year. But after this year in, in the dynasty leagues, I'm in. I'm going to see if I can get him from whoever has him because you're, you're not going to see any obvious reasons for optimism. The Raiders will probably keep him wrapped up pretty much all year. If you're looking for some you know good sign, it probably won't be there. But I'm instead choosing to focus on what he did in college because all he ever did was produce better than than his peers even though he had an age disadvantage so if, if he can do that I just have I just have faith right or wrong that he'll get to that sort of level in the NFL and Hunter Renfro is going to be what like a 26 year old second year player I think he's going to pretty quickly max out I think his best season as a Raider will be this year and then uh, Edwards and Bowden and Rogues will all start to take away from him I laughed. You were actually pretty close. I mean, he's 24 right now. Uh, his birthday is in December. So you're right. He actually would be a 26 year old, uh, third year player next year. Yeah. Debo's pretty old. Uh, sorry, not that it's really important, but like Debo's <laughs> Debo's kind of up there like that too. Um, which, which is why it's all that much more impressive to me that Edwards did what he did. Like it, it would have been impressive if him and Debo were the same age and he posts the same numbers as him, but to do it at two and a half years younger, bad players can't do that. You know, bad players can't be two and a half years younger than Debo Samuel and then put up the same numbers as Debo Samuel who we've seen be an effective NFL player. I think that's the important context behind that. Yeah, totally. 
All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was a bit longer, but I, you know, my bad. Gotta have these pass, you got to have these pass catcher conversations because this was such a deep draft. It's hard to fit it all in, in 15, 20 minutes. I'm, I'm right there with you on this. I think this is great. Yeah, man. Uh, that's, that's just the, that's the risk you take with me. I just never stop <laughs> blithering about stuff. No one cares about that's not true, but we at least got a little bit of reinforcement on some guys that we do like, uh, throughout this podcast. So thanks for, thanks for coming on and joining me, Mario. Yeah, no problem, man. That does it for us in episode 10 of the show. Special thanks, of course, to the Racing Pulses for lending their music, as well as Mario Puig for tackling a complicated and deep rookie pass-catching class. Tune in next time as a special guest and I run over the top fantasy college prospects to conclude this mini-series. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.